There are many languages spoken in the world, and English is one of the important ones, but not the only important one. However, it has been the dominant language in the field of communication and media studies. What are the implications of this? About this and many other important topics is this conversation with Magdalena Saldaña in this new episode of El Café Latinx. What is the experience of being a Latinx or Latin American scholar in the field of communication and media studies? What are the main challenges and opportunities that come with our identities? These are the issues that we'll talk about in El Café Latinx, where some of the leading voices in the field will share their professional experiences. Hola, my name is Pablo Wojcicki. I teach at Northwestern University, where I hold the Hamid bin Khalif Al Thani Chair in Communication. Together with Mora Matassi, doctoral student at Northwestern and executive producer of this podcast, we invite you to discover the journeys of scholars who are at the cutting edge of creating knowledge about Latinx or Latin American communities across the Americas. These are our stories. Esas son nuestras historias. Estas son nuestras historias. Welcome everybody to this new edition of El Café Latinx. I am delighted to have with me today Magdalena Saldaña. Magdalena is assistant professor at Pontificia Universidad Católica de Chile in Santiago, where she's been there since 2017. Before that, she was on the faculty at Texas Tech University in the US. She completed her PhD at the University of Texas at Austin in the School of Journalism in 2017. Before that, she did her BA in journalism at Universidad de Concepción in Chile, and also her MA in sociology in the same university. Magdalena's work is in the areas of digital journalism, social media, political communication, Latin American studies. She's been exceedingly prolific. She has over 20 journal articles, four already since the start of 2021. Uh, she also uh, has received critical acclaim, has won many scholarly awards from important professional associations like uh, AEJMC, Maypor, etc. Um, she's got lots of grants, both in her home country of Chile and also in the US, for instance, in, by the Social Science Research Council. I've known uh, Magdalena since she was a graduate student. We met at a conference, I believe, in Phoenix. Arizona many years ago. So I, I'm, I'm really thrilled to see how she's you know, developed as a scholar and become a, a leader in the field. Uh, without further ado, Magdalena, welcome to El Café Latinx. Thank you, Pablo. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. So Magdalena, how did it all begin? That is, how was the start of the journey that uh, led you to become a professor? Well, the journey uh, began when I was in college. I had a, uh, a class, a, a research methods class when I was an undergrad. I was a journalism major and um, I wasn't expecting anything regarding like academic research, you know? But then um, undergrads in, in a lot of majors, they have to do uh, a thesis, you know, an undergraduate thesis. So they, they give you like a short, brief crash course <laughs> on research methods. And I loved it. Uh, I, I found it so interesting and I love the stats and I love like the fact that you can actually understand when, I don't know, a variable affects another one. 
it was so new to me and then so interesting that it was like, okay, I have to learn more about this. And then once I graduated, uh, I applied for um, for a master's program in, uh, at the University of Concepcion because I, I got a, a scholarship to do that. So I did the one that offers the, the, the Department of Sociology, which is not necessarily a master's in sociology, but a master's in social research, a master's to do research in the social sciences. So it's um, more focused on, on methodology. And I was so happy when I was there, really. Um, I was like, okay, this is, this is something I want to do. I love being a journalist. I love telling stories, you know, um, but this is, it's different. And I know that if I pursue this, this career path, right, I'm going to become a professor. And I was happy with that because I like teaching. And I realized that researching was something that I was passionate about. And I had no idea before. So when I was um, about to finish my master's, um, Universidad de Concepcion invited me to, to teach research methods for journalism majors. And I was so young, I was 26 years old. I was finishing up my master's and I was, I, I got a bit scared, you know, a bit of imposter syndrome. It's like, oh, am I gonna be able to do this? And then it was like, well, if they call me to do it, it's because they trust me. If I don't do a good job, it's gonna be their fault. <laughs> because they invited me. So I'm going to do this. And uh, I, I really liked it. I don't know how good it was my first time, probably not good, um, but I kept doing it. And I ended up working uh, as an adjunct professor for different schools in Concepcion, not just Universidad de Concepcion, um, uh, teaching research methods basically for four years. And then I was like, okay, is this something that I want to keep doing it? because I was super busy, uh, but I was also poorly paid. Um, and I was like, okay, if I wanna become a, a faculty member, I have to get my PhD. So at that point, that was like, that was a reflection that I had like in 2010, like 2011, like 10 years ago, right? And at that point, we didn't have any doctoral program in Chile uh, in communication or journalism. We did have, programs in sociology or education, but uh, not in journalism or, or communication. So I started looking around and um, I applied for a Fulbright scholarship, which I got. So then it was very clear that I could do this in the US. And um, I applied for different schools and I ended up going to the University of Texas at Austin. So that's how it started. That was the journey. So, and Concepcion, is that your hometown? Is that where you grew up? It is not, uh, but I feel like I am from there because I lived more most of my adult life there. I, I got there at 18 years old to, to go to college, and then I left when I was 30 to go to the U.S. to do my Ph.D. Right. So, uh, yeah, I spent a lot of time there. So I, I'm from San Carlos, which is a very small town an hour away from Concepcion. So it's really close to Concepcion. But um, I never went to Concepcion before that. Uh, I was always in San Carlos. That is like a 50,000 uh, people town. It, it's very small. Every Everybody knows everybody. And uh, I was in a little bubble there. Uh, it's interesting when, when people ask me like, was it too hard for you to go to the US? And I'm like, yeah, but it was harder for me to go from San Carlos to Concepcion. Because then I, I, I grew. And I realized a lot of people, a lot of things that I didn't know when I was a child, basically, or when I was in high school. So that transition from high school to college was the 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 very hard transition that I have had in my life. 
Interesting. So, so, so I, I apologize for my ignorance, but how big of a city is Concepcion and where is it in Chile in geographically? Is it south, right? Or it's in the south. Well, <laughs> it's interesting because Chile is so long that whatever is like further south from Santiago is the south, you know, but we have okay. like many, many, <laughs> many tiers of south in the country. So um, if you drive from Santiago to Concepcion, it's going to be around six hours. Oh. But if you look at it in the map, it's like in the middle of the country. It's not like the very, it's not close to the Antarctica and the penguins. No. Okay. <laughs> so it's not, how, it's not the real south. Okay. And how big of a city? The city is probably a million people. It's the second largest one in, in Chile. So Santiago and then Concepcion and then Valparaíso. Those are the three main main cities in, in, in Chile. But Santiago is, uh, well, insanely big, right? Like it's like six million people. So right. uh, none of other places compare. But Concepcion is probably around a million. Yeah. So the, the change in scale from 50,000 to a million, it's and especially at age 18, must have been absolutely daunting. Yeah, I know. It was unbelievable. And I, I met like very, like, I don't know, heterogeneous people. That's something that I didn't have in San Carlos. Um, I don't know. I, I realized what being a rich person is. I didn't know that uh, before that. Uh, I didn't know that you had to pay to go to like, I don't know, high school I, I didn't know how expensive it was because in San Carlos, we didn't have that. When, when I got there and I realized that people were paying tuition that was higher than the university tuition, I was like, oh my goodness. So this is the life I, I, I didn't know about, you know? So um, yes, it, it was a, a very interesting transition. And I guess it prepared me for whatever came later. You know, like I was an, an exchange student uh, in Germany when I was doing my master's. And that was also interesting, but again, nothing compares to the journey that going from San Carlos to Concepcion, yeah. All right. So, and then when it came time to do a PhD, you decided not to go to Germany, for instance, but to go to the US, or did you also apply to schools in Europe? No, no. Once I got the Fulbright scholarship, I was like, okay, this is it. Uh, before that, before Fulbright, uh, I, I thought about it, right? I thought about going to Germany or to like, I don't know, Vienna or Amsterdam, which, I don't know, great schools are there. But um, that was like my plan, like to have like different options. But once I got the Fulbright scholarship, I was like, no, then it has to be the US. And it was good. I, it was it was my main option. So, yeah. Okay, and, and why UT Austin? Why UT Austin? Well, um, I applied with my boyfriend at that time, who is my husband today. So the two of us wanted to go there for different reasons. I wanted to do the PhD to become an academic, and he wanted to do a master's to earn more money, <laughs> basically. Uh, he's an engineer. Um, so we applied together uh, for different programs, right? Uh, but we had to agree on where we could do this, right? So you, we might apply to different schools, but it had to be the same city so we could be together. Um, but it was hard because that, that implied that both of us had to be accepted by the same school or schools in the same place, right? So um, we ended up being accepted, the two of us, uh, by three universities. And the only one that accepted both of us was the University of Texas. So it, it was an easy decision, you know? It was like, well, we can be together here, so we're going there. Um, but we did apply for schools that we really liked, 
So um, all the schools that I applied for were schools that were like great in the field. Uh, and I, I wanted to go there, you know? So I, I didn't have places that it was like, yeah, I'm applying for this one just because, but I, I don't really want it. No, I, all of them were like schools that I could like to be in. Um, but we ended up going to, to Austin, which was great. I mean, I, I didn't know how great it could be until I got there, you know? I didn't know that that could be a place uh, where you have a great university, but also a great place to live, a great city. It's not in the middle of nowhere, you know, it's, it's an actual city. <laughs> it's big and it's diverse and it's full of life and music. So we loved it. Yeah, I had a very good time. The four years I was in Austin, they were like very, very good years for me. Excellent. And, um, you know, beyond that, how was the experience of being a student from Latin America at the university in the US in general and at the university in Texas in particular, in Austin. Right, yeah, I mean, it's different, right? Like one thing is to be a student in Texas and a different thing is to be a student in Austin. <laughs> I noticed that when I went to Lubbock, Texas uh, for my first year as an assistant professor and, and I noticed the differences, right? Uh, which was a great time too, but it, it was totally different. So being a Latin American person in the US, uh, it's gonna be permitted by, by where you go and what you do, you know? So in my case, I was in, a, in this bubble, uh, which is the academic bubble where people are like intellectual elites, basically. So you have less uh, chances to be discriminated against or to encounter bigotry or stuff like that, you know? Uh, you're in a very protected environment uh, of, of intellectual people surrounding you, professors, other students, people from different countries, all of them like trying to look for a better education. So it was a great thing, but but I'm sure that if I went uh, on a different situation, uh, maybe my, my, my experience wouldn't be as good as it uh, ended up being, you know? Um, it was far, hard for me during my first year because my English wasn't that good. So uh, I, I suffered <laughs> a little bit. Uh, it was hard for me to write. Like I could take so much time to write like a paragraph. Um, but then with, with the time you end up learning, right? And I was super, super lucky to surround me with very good friends. Uh, the other students in my cohort, they are my friends till today. And I learned so much from them. Uh, in terms of the language, but also in terms of life and life experiences. So uh, if you ask me, my experience was great. It has uh, some, some hard spots, of course, but uh, uh, at the end of the day, I just have good things to say about it. Excellent. So from there you went to Texas Tech. Um, did you consider jobs in the U.S. and outside of the U.S. at the time, or did you want to stay in the U.S.? Um, how was the decision? Well, th that was something that happened in uh, in the middle of the of, of this journey, right? So initially, when we went there, um, we always thought about like finishing our our degrees and then coming back to Chile. That was always the plan. And I remember saying this in my first year, and people said that you're going to change your mind. And I was like, maybe, I don't think so though, but yes, I did, <laughs> I did change it. And um, when all my friends and, and, and well, people from, from graduate school started going into the job market, I was like, okay, am I gonna do this or not? Am I going back to Chile? Do I wanna stay? And then it was like, okay, I'm gonna go to the job market because why not, 
right? If I ended up going back to Chile anyways, at least I'm going to have the experience uh, to, to know how it is, you know, to go for a job interview, to have a campus visit, um, to eventually discuss and negotiate a job offer, which was amazing and uh, overwhelming at the same time. <laughs> um, so I, I, I did it. I, I went to the agency job hub first and, um, and then applied for different schools. And uh, I, I really value the, the, the stuff that I learned from there. And I did my, my homework. I did a lot of research. Uh, I think I, I did well at the three campus visits that I ended up having. Oh. I got two job offers. So uh, it was good. And then uh, once I went to, to Texas Tech, I started having issues with my visa immigration uh, status, my immigration status. And it was really hard because I hadn't finished my dissertation yet. So uh, it was, on the one hand, it was complicated to get a, a, a work visa because I hadn't finished my PhD. But on the other hand, uh, I had a Fulbright scholarship and Fulbright has a requirement for you to go back to your home country for two years before you can change your immigration status. So um, it was very complicated and I, I managed to work for a year, um, but then it was becoming just so hard. And I was uh, in the middle of that when um, a job opening uh, arised at Catholica University. And it was like, oh, this, this might be the chance that I'm waiting for, you know, like, and now I could go back to my country and I have it and have a great job because uh, Catholica is a great school. Right? So I applied uh, and I got the job and, and I, I came back to Chile the same day that I defended my dissertation. So I remember this, this was on a Friday morning. <laughs> Uh, people cannot see your face right now, but let me tell you that he's super surprised. Pablo is super surprised. So I defended my, my dissertation on a Friday morning. Um, a friend of mine went to pick me up to go to my defense that was face-to-face uh, -face <laughs> before the pandemic. And he had to go to pick me up because I had like a lot of uh, suitcase <laughs> and luggage. Yes. And then we went to school and then I uh, had my dissertation defense and then we all happy all together, professors and students, we all went together for lunch and then we went for happy hour and then we said goodbye for real and they dropped me off to the airport and I came. We have packed everything in your apartment or whatever and then you had already done all of that. I had to do both, you know, I had to pack and prepare my dissertation defense at the same time. So the night before I could do, I could be like working off like all the potential uh, questions that they could ask me while also packing the last stuff that I had left. Because I had shipped a lot of things to Chile, you know, my car, I shipped my car because I really liked it. Uh, all my books, like some other stuff. So I, I had, I ended up with like three, <laughs> three suitcases, like totally overweighted <laughs> and, um, and, and yes, uh, it's interesting. That happened on a Friday. And then on Saturday, I was uh, on my home in my hometown celebrating, you know, like, oh, she's back and she's a doctor and she's going to live here again. And then on Monday, I went to work. <laughs> so you went to San Carlos on Saturday morning and then 48 hours or Saturday yeah. afternoon, whatever. Yeah. And then 48 hours later, you were in Santiago in your yeah. office. Yeah meeting my new office that was empty because I didn't have anything at that point to to, sure. to have on my shelves. But yes, it was uh wow. Yeah. That's it. That's it was challenging. Yeah. But it yeah, was yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure. Uh all the emotions in addition to all the logistics, right? Yes. Um and all the work. 
So, so how, since you've been, a, you were a professor in the States, now you're a professor in Chile, how does it compare? What are the things that are similar, but in particular, what are the things that are different? Um, and I mean, one should clarify that uh, Católica in Santiago is, is not only Católica in Chile, it's one of the top two or three universities in Latin America, but also in the field of communication and, and media studies is the top place by, by far, I would say. Um, it has, uh, so not all places in Latin America have uh, the same level of resources and capabilities and, and the same uh, caliber of people. But how does it compare uh, the job in one place versus you know, daily routines, the kinds of things, problems, issues, opportunities, et cetera? Yeah, uh, well, there are some things that work very similar and some other things that are different, of course. Um, interestingly enough, the tenure expectations are almost the same. And I wasn't expecting that, <laughs> it was funny to find out. So uh, they want you to publish a lot. They want you to publish in English. They want you to publish in journals that are top tier uh, journals. Um, they want you to be good at teaching. They want you to do a lot of outsourcing and like stuff for the community, you know? And, um, and it was similar to what they expected me to do when I was at Texas Tech. So uh, on the one hand, it was fine to me, you know, because I was trained in, in, the, in the US system that it already prepares you to do publications and conferences and teaching and all stuff. So uh, it, it, it has been okay for me. Like, I think I'm doing, I'm doing well enough. Um, things that are different in a good way is, uh, again, the tenure process, because in the US, if you don't get tenure, you have to leave, right? Like you have five, six years to do your job. And then if you're not promoted, then you have to find another job. Uh, at Catolica is a little different. So you, you have um, the opportunity to go up for tenure after four years of being an assistant professor. And if you don't make it for whatever reasons, because you don't have enough publications, because your teaching needs more work or whatever, you can try again the next year. And if you don't get it, you can try again the following year. So you have three chances to do it. Um, you have a maximum amount of, uh, of years that you can use on this, like it's seven years. So if you didn't make it in seven years, then you have to leave. But again, you have three opportunities, which I think is more humane. It's a more humane process than what it is in the US. So I, I could say that those two things were new to me, you know, like how similar it was in, in, in some areas and how different it was in some others. How about the teaching? Is the load comparable and the amount, number of students, the you know, number of teaching hours, etc. How does that compare? At Catolica, it, it's very similar. Well, in my case, for example, um, I had a, a two two teaching load at Texas Tech that uh, it was going to be one three one two at some at some point, but uh, but I came back, uh, and here I do have that two a, a two two teaching load. And uh, I have less students here though. Um, I, I think that in my, in my courses at Texas Tech, I had like around 60, for instance, uh, in some classes, some others would be like 20 or even less. Uh, here, I don't have a course that, that is uh, larger than 30 people. And I teach um, research methods for doctoral students and those classes are like four people. So it's great, yeah. <laughs> And I really love that. I, I like uh, teaching doctoral students because uh, I feel like the mentoring thing is such a relevant thing. 
not just academically, but for life, you know, like you have to remember that you're not training professionals or academics, you are teaching people and you have to be humane and you have to be generous and you have to guide people. And, and I think that people sometimes forget that. So um, I try to be as, um, I don't want to use the word nurturing, but I guess I do that with my doctoral students. And, and it's, it's great for me when I see them like going to conferences or getting their papers published or I don't know, teaching their first class ever. And then they, they text me on WhatsApp and they are like, hey, Magda, look, I did this and I'm so happy. And I'm like, oh my God, like, thank you for letting me know because I feel like we have this connection where you have the need to tell me about it. And I feel so happy about it. And we're all happy about it and it's great, <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. Now, continue with the issue of teaching. Some uh, you know, previous uh, guests in the podcast who are also in Latin America and universities in Latin America uh, have commented that who are also trained in the US um, uh, like you commented that, that in their experience teaching has a, a greater uh, presence in their daily lives in Latin America than what they see their peers, um, you know, that experience of their peers in US-based institutions. Um, since you taught in both, right, would you, so US and, and, and Chile, would you say that also applies to your experience or is fairly similar? Um, I, yeah, I understand what you're saying because in, I think in a lot of universities in Chile, it's just like that. You know, they are teaching schools and the teaching part is the most important part of your job. And if you manage to get papers published and go to conferences, well, that's great. But that doesn't mean that you have like a, I don't know, free pass to not care about your teaching so much. I could say that Catolica is a different thing um, because they are very concerned about uh, research, you know. And uh, given that, I could say that the thing that they care the most is probably research. And they do care about teaching, of course. I mean, you can be a great researcher. If you're not a good educator, then you're gonna be in trouble, right? But uh, if you're a good educator, a good professor, and you don't do research and you were hired for that, then you're gonna be in an even larger trouble, in a bigger trouble, you know? So um, we do have the, the difference between tenure track professors who are hired to do research and teaching and uh, professors of practice who only do teaching. So for them, the teaching is the main thing, of course. And they have uh, like higher teaching loads, like three, three, four, four even. Um, but for tenure track professors, uh, research is the most important thing. So I, I try to balance it out, you know, like uh, I, I care about teaching a lot. And as I'm telling you, I care about my mentorship. I, I think the mentorship part for me has become really, really important. I try to include all my, my, my students uh, from different like tiers, you know, like undergrads, master's students, PhD students, I try to invite them to my projects and work with them um, for them to get to get experience. I mean, if you want to know whether you like this world or not, academia, then you have to practice and do, and do stuff because otherwise it's going to be all theoretically and you're never going to find out whether you're good at it and whether it makes you happy. So I do a lot of mentoring and uh, unfortunately that is not in any evaluation form. Right. So all the mentoring that you do, it goes unnoticed, I think. And I, I don't think that's good. Uh, so I'm very vocal about it. <laughs> I'm openly saying that, hey, I'm going to train the student to go to ICA, for instance, uh, which is not very normal because of the resources. Right. It's so hard to, to travel 
from Chile to whatever ICA is going on. Um, but since this year is going to be online, just like last year, but we didn't know on time. Uh, since we knew that it could be online this year, I was uh, prepping my students and, and telling them, like, you have to go. Like, this, this is it, you know, you have to go now because next year it's going to be in Paris, which is going to be great, but maybe you're not going to have the, the resources. I mean, if you do have them, please, please go. But if you don't, this might be your opportunity to present at ICA. And I, I was able to convince some of them to submit stuff either for a pre-conference or for a main conference. And I did the same for AJMC too. And they, many of them submitted stuff to AJMC. We don't know yet whether they are gonna get accepted or not. But even the exercise of submitting stuff, of writing stuff in English, like even if it's an extended abstract, even if they, can, if they get rejected, that's already a learning thing, you know, a learning process. So I'm, I'm very happy about it. Excellent. So a couple of things um, that I noticed um, in your curriculum, because I follow your, your career and the publications, uh, since you came back to Chile, uh, um, one is that you, you're doing more and more interdisciplinary work, uh, working in particular for people in, in computer science uh, and in data science, and you're part of uh, a very important initiative in Chile uh, in that respect, and you got grants for that. The other has to do with, I mean, you are now uh, international engagement editor for digital journalism, um, uh, one which is rapidly becoming one of the leading publications in the field. And you are, this is a new position. You talked about outreach or service, but this is at a different scale. Um, so I wonder if you could comment a little bit about both your experience doing interdisciplinary work. Um, particularly cutting across the social and physical sciences or you know, computational sciences, and also your experience doing international work and trying to globalize the field as a whole. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so regarding the interdisciplinary work, um, I was lucky enough to be invited to be part of this institute, right? The Millennium Institute, which is funded by the Chilean government. And um, in, in the case of this institute in particular, we have researchers from computer science, uh, political science, statistics, and um, communications. Uh, I might be forgetting one, one of the areas that we cover, but that, that's the most important um, um, part of it, the, the interdisciplinary work. So the idea was for us to be part of the institute, not to do the same thing that we always do. Because that, that could have been a possibility, right? Like all of us working on their own niches and then publishing a lot. And then the, the institute could be like showing like, hey, we have great productivity here. But then it could be the same thing. It could be me in my office with my students. So they kind of forced us to work together. And uh, it has worked for me very well because I have learned so much from them. Uh, I have no idea whether they have learned from me. From me. <laughs> and I'm fine with that. But uh, uh, when, when I work with the computer scientists, it, it's just so cool to see all the things that they can do and uh, the fact that they need us to do stuff as well. Like uh, they are always like, okay, we, we need an expert to understand how to go this because um, we're doing this based on our intuition, but we want to do it based on literature and you know about this, so let's work together. And um, by doing that, we have been able to do lots of very exciting uh, projects. For instance, uh, in the pre-conference that we're organizing at ICA, right, the, the one about digital media in Latin America, I'm going to present a project about memes. 
you know, memes on Twitter and how they were used for the political riots in Chile. But that project wouldn't be possible if I didn't team up with uh, a group of um, computer scientists, not the same people that, I'm, that I presented today in the seminar, other, other people, uh, that were able to create the infrastructure to download all the tweets containing images. And then uh, I coded with my students, I coded these images to uh, determine whether they were memes or not. And then we taught an algorithm to understand how we did it. So then the algorithm can classify those images itself and say, this is a meme and this is not. And then we can do a semantic search of memes by telling the algorithm, show me a meme about cats. And the algorithm is gonna understand what it is a meme and what it's a meme about cats. So we're working on that and it's been great. So we're gonna have a paper that is more like communication oriented, which is the one that I'm gonna present at, at ICA. And then the other one that is more computer science oriented, but we were able to do both together, you know? So that has been just great. Uh, it's been a, a great um, experience. And you, when you learn with other people, well, not, not just uh, social science, but uh, pardon, not, not just computer science, but um, political scientists or statistics people, you understand that your view of the things is always so narrow. And you didn't know that. You didn't know how narrow you were in your approach until somebody from other discipline tells you like, oh, we, we do this from this other perspective. And you're like, oh my God, this is way more interesting. So then you start together. And I think that the work ended up being way better than initially was. Now, regarding the international experience, right? Um, well, yes, I am constantly advocating for academia to be more globalized, more diverse, more, uh, I, I want more integration. And then when Oscar Westlund invited me to be an international engagement uh, editor, I, I said yes immediately, even though I, I didn't really understand what he wanted from me, you know, like, what am I going to do here? But it was like, no, yeah, let's do it. Whatever it is, let's do it. Because this is going to be a platform for me to advocate for the things that I think are right. Uh, so what I'm doing right now for, for the for the journal is try to make the journal more visible for um, Latino scholars, right? And um, I proposed Oscar to have some some sections of the journal's newsletter in Spanish because uh, I was telling some of my colleagues here in Chile, you know, like, oh, this, this journal is great and you should check it out because some of the stuff that you're researching, they have pa pa uh, published papers about that already. So you should take a look at it. And then they were like, how can I know more about this journal? Oh, we do have a newsletter. And then I was like, well, maybe for those who are not so fluent in English, it could be interesting to have the editor's note in Spanish because Oscar usually summarizes the main things that are going on in the journal in his uh, editorial note. And then that quickly escalated. And now we have the editorial note translated into Chinese and Arabic and Russian and very soon Portuguese and French. Excellent. So uh, I think that's very cool. And, and it shows uh, an attempt to make the, the journal more accessible from different places over the world. So the, the translations are undertaken by volunteers who are part of the board or how, how does it work you know, on, a, on, a, on a practical basis? It works pro bono as many things in academia. <laughs> <laughs> as you know, it works because people are generous and do things for free. Yes. So uh, we invited 
some people in, in the editorial board when, when I did the, the Spanish thing. Um, um, full disclosure, I, I do get paid to be an international engagement editor. This is not pro bono work. Uh, they told me that the position came with a, a cash incentive and, and I took it. <laughs> but um, I, I suggested uh, Oscar to have the, the translation in Spanish without thinking that we could have other languages as well. And then we, we presented the, the editorial in Spanish only one time. And then other people uh, immediately started volunteering for that, saying that, oh, I, I would like to do this in Russian, or I would like to do this in French. So we didn't have to uh, look around and, and beg people to do it, basically, because people wanted to do it, uh, which was great. So um, it could be cool if, if more people could volunteer, so then we, can, we, we don't have just one person translating every month, but maybe a person translating three or four times a year because we have more people doing it, you know? So we might get to that point. We do have that for the Arabic translation. We have two scholars who have volunteered to do it. So they, they switch every month. And maybe we can do that in the future uh, for other languages as well. Um, I would like that. Uh, so step by step, baby step. Excellent. And then, so following up on this, how do you see the global aspect of the discipline? That is, um, you know, there is communication research and media science research, you know, many parts of the world. Um, do you see, um, uh, you know, a more sort of a certain some, some, some sense of egalitarian or horizontal distribution of uh, topics, ideas, perspectives? Do you see some dominance in other, you know, in, in some regions versus not others? Um, how do you see those dynamics and um, uh, both reflecting on your experience in the US and also where you are now? Mm -hmm. Well, the short answer to your question is no, I don't see any of those things. Uh, the long answer, the long answer is that Yes, I mean, there is some of it, right? Like I, I've noticed that um, work, like international work and global work, it's more welcoming in the last years, you know, than it was when I was a student, for instance. Um, but I'm afraid that I don't see a lot of interest, you know, like for, for instance, when I go to a conference and I present stuff about the US, I'm gonna get a lot of questions and it's not gonna be the same if I present stuff about Chile. You know, so people are going to be respectful and it's going to be like, oh, well, yeah, this is this is quite well, you know, but uh, they don't ask questions because I, I, I interpret that as a lack of interest. So I might be wrong, of course, but I noticed that I noticed that um, not a lot of interest, even though they still want people from different countries to submit stuff. So it's, it's kind of a double standard, if you ask me, because it's like, OK, do you want me or not? Do you want me just to be your token? Because if you do, I'll be your token. Yes, of course. Uh, and, I'll, and I will uh, take advantage of the platform to tell you about my research and to make you aware that you're ignoring a huge part of the world probably. Um, but I could like to, to, uh, to, for the academia to be more interested in, in different places, not just some places, you know? And, and I think that maybe we're going to that end. It's gonna take time. Uh, but slowly I see the, the discipline moving toward that, you know, like maybe more interest in comparative studies, although you always have to compare to the global north, otherwise it's not that interesting again, you know. Um, 
but but I'm I'm more optimistic about that. Uh, I think that we're doing work that at some point is going to be very well received. But um, we're going there, but we're not there yet. Same with citation patterns, by the way. The same kind of content, if it is about uh, a country in the global north, in particular the US, would get cited several you know, orders of magnitude more than similar kind of argument and content on a country in the global south. So, so why do you think the change? I mean, what is, what is driving this change, in your opinion? Well, I think that society in general are becoming more aware, you know, about about the things that uh, should should matter. You know, like I don't know. In the case of Chile, we're having uh, recent waves of immigration that we didn't have before. And that's that. Well, that's been very interesting because then we realized that we were actually racist and we didn't know that. And uh, when we receive people from Haiti or Colombia or Venezuela, then we realized like, oh my God, we're being hostile toward these people. And uh, we, we didn't know before that we were hostile. <laughs> and I think that uh, the, the fact that we are aware of that uh, means that we're going to be, at some point, we're going to be more welcoming. And I think that that happens in academia too. Like if you become aware that uh, this one country that it's set by default for all studies, it's not necessarily representative of the whole world. Uh, maybe you're aware that maybe when, when I receive another paper that is not about the US or not about countries in, in Europe, it's still relevant and I should consider it and I should find the right reviewers for that too. So it's it's uh, a bigger effort, of course, for those who are uh, in editorial boards uh, or in editorial positions. But uh, I think that being aware is the first step and I think that people are in fact more aware now. Again, I think that being aware doesn't mean being interested. And I see those things uh, when I present my work. I, I think that my work about the US is um, maybe more discussed or more cited than my work about Chile in particular, but that, that's not gonna stop me, right? I'm gonna keep working on what I want, but um, I'm still working on stuff about the US, of course. I don't wanna be, <laughs> I don't wanna be out of the loop, but yes. Okay, so then if you had magical powers and, and could be granted one wish about what you'd like, uh, how you would like the field of communication and media studies to change, what would you wish for? I could wish for a more diverse academia. I could wish for uh, a research discipline that doesn't take the global north as the default thing. Uh, less global north centered and less English dependent. I would wish to be able to publish my research in Spanish without providing an English version of it. I would wish to have ISI journals that are entirely in Spanish. We, we don't have a lot of those right now. Um, I, could, I wish to be free to, to use whatever language I want and do research in whatever country I want. So um, even though I am doing research in whatever country I, I want right now, I've done stuff on Lebanon and like, I don't know, Nordic countries because I have uh, worked with other people, right? Not just myself, um, but the language thing is an issue. So um, I've noticed for instance, that if I, if I write papers in Spanish, I'm not gonna have a lot of journals where I can submit them. And my university cares about ISI publications 
So um, I don't feel like I'm free to publish in Spanish. I don't think I have the possibility because if I do that, I'm not going to have a lot of journals submit my work and then I'm going to end up uh, eventually publishing in a journal that is not ISI and that's going to hurt my publication record. I, I, I don't like having uh, to make that decision, you know? Um, so I would try to change uh, those things in academia with my magical powers. All right. I, I hope you, you are granted them then uh, so that you can change that for, for all of us. Thank you so much, Magdalena. This has been super enlightening. Um, and I want to thank also the listeners for staying with us to the end and invite everybody to join us for the next episode of El Café Latinx. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. Thanks. Café Latinx is a production of the Center for Latinx Digital Media in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. I am Pablo Wojcicki, your host, and I'm joined by executive producer Mona Matassi.